From UA Little Rock Public Radio, this is The Art Scene. I'm Daniel Breen. Melba Patillo Beals, Minnie Jean Brown, Elizabeth Eckford, Ernest Green, Gloria Ray Karlmark, Carlotta Walzenier, Thelma Mothershed, Terrence Roberts, and Jefferson Thomas. As teenagers 63 years ago, these nine black Arkansans were the first to attend classes at the previously all-white Little Rock Central High School. The story of the Little Rock Nine is a nuanced one, one of bravery and torment that for some who lived it is a story too painful and harrowing to tell. Little Rock musicians Christopher Parker and Kelly Hurt sought to accurately represent the gravity of that story while celebrating the triumph of it in their jazz composition, No Tears Sweet, based on the memoir, Warriors Don't Cry by Melba Patillo Beals. They enlisted Grammy award-winning drummer Brian Blade, bassist Bill Huntington, trumpeter Mark Franklin, and saxophonist Bobby Lavelle and Chad Fowler make their interpretation of this essential account of civil rights history accessible to the modern audience. Art Scene spoke with Hurt and Parker about the work behind the music and their approach to revisiting and retelling the Nine story. The suite, in an orchestral arrangement played by the Arkansas Symphony Orchestra, is newly released by Arkansas jazz label Mahakala Music and the Oxford American. The original title of this project was the No Tears Suite. We're kind of changing that name to No Tears Project, but uh, yeah, I'm the composer and the pianist and Kelly Hurt, mostly she did the spoken word and lyrics for the piece. I understand y'all are both Arkansans. Uh, I guess if you could just tell me a little bit how you know each other and uh, sort of where, where are y'all from? And... Well, we both currently live in North Little Rock, but I'm actually from North Little Rock. So I was raised, born and raised here, moved to Memphis, early 90s. Kelly and I were both at Memphis State by 92 we were both at memphis state and by 2000 we were married but we had already started venturing out to new york city mid well i started going to new york in the early 90s and coming back to memphis and then we both moved to new york i think in 97 and 98 and then we came back again and then we moved back up there in 90 nine or 98 or nine. anyway we moved back and forth several times eventually settled in memphis by 2001 stayed there 10 more years and 2011 we relocated back here and i started teaching at uh booker arts magnet elementary as the orchestra teacher and piano teacher and last year i moved over to horace mann which is interesting because that was actually the school that all the Little Rock Nine came from to go to Central. How did you first come to the story of the Little Rock Nine? What was your first exposure sort of to that? For me, well, just growing up in North Little Rock, Little Rock area and knowing about Central High School, you hear the stories over the years. My mom had personal stories. She was a middle, upper elementary early middle school age kid when all of that was going on um it's weird though because you really don't you you hear about that it had from my end i always heard well it had happened i knew that there was a little rock nine i knew that in 1957 they we were the city that integrated the school systems that was it pretty much for me when i when we moved back Kelly and I saw the, there's these bronze statues behind the Capitol and it's called the, uh, it's Testament. called Testament. 
and it's the nine kids. And she would ask me, who is that? And I would go, well, that's a Little Rock Nine, way before we knew we were going to do this project. We would ask a little bit more questions, you know, just out of curiosity. We lived in, we, when we were in Memphis, most of the time we lived around the corner from the Lorraine Motel, okay. which is the Civil Rights Museum where Martin Luther King was shot. Yeah. You know, and we also, the other end of Front Street in Memphis, you run into what they call Auction Street. And there is actually still an auction block where they used to drive the slaves up to the auction block and auction off. Yeah. And that whole, there's a whole section of Front Street. We, we lived at Monroe in Front. That's called Cotton Row. And that was like all the cotton shippers had like a Wall Street thing down there. So we, we had kind of, you know, over the years, kind of gotten into little local history stuff. And so as we inquired more about it, it was just kind of curious how everyone knew about it, but how little they knew about it. You know, people always say, why did you want to write a piece for the Little Rock Nine? I was like, because someone asked me to, you know, I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know there was going to be a commemoration, a 60th anniversary. It wasn't like I came up to them and went, man, I want to do this thing for Little Rock. You know, they came to me. And at that time, all I was doing was teaching school and maybe playing a few little gigs around town. But Ryan and I had, we just had a certain connection. So he asked me to do it. And as we did it, we were like, well, what are we going to do? You know, and I was like, what I don't want to do is write a big, pretentious, complicated jazz music work that's real stylistic and heady and, they're going to tell you if you don't like it, it's because you don't understand jazz. And basically, I'm a jazz musician. You know, I've been trained classically. I've worked with symphonies. I've played all kinds of music. I played at country gigs in Memphis, blues gigs in Memphis, you know. But I'm a jazz musician. But I have an issue with, I don't know, the pretentious state of modern jazz at this point. It's just very heady and academic. And when people describe jazz, they say, well, it's complicated or it's fast or it's hard. And it's like, that's not really the adjectives I want. When I think of Coltrane, that's actually not what I say. You know, I, I think, wow, Coltrane's so spiritual, you know. Monk, you know, you don't go, well, a lot of people will say, well, he's abstract and eccentric. And I'm like, man, Monk is what I put on when I've had a bad day and I need to just chill, you know. <laughs> So I wanted to write music that was accessible. At the same time, if you're going to pay me for this big work, I needed to write some stuff, not just come in with like some folk songs and sketches and say, give me all this money. You know, I had to balance a, a, a certain amount of compositional integrity, so to speak, with something that the homeless guys out by Central High that are going to hear this premiere, I, you know, I always judge when I played in Memphis, if we played on Beale Street, I would judge how we sounded by the homeless people reaction. And if the homeless people are out there jamming and trying to get free beer, you sound good. Because if you don't sound good, they are going to move on. I mean, it's a weird, you know, weird psychology, but I just wanted to write something that everybody at the party could get into even if I knew I was going to take them into some dimensions that were going to kind of freak them out a little bit, which I knew parts of the roll call and a whole section called crisis was going to trip some people out because they're not used to hearing that kind of just open improvisation. And I knew the overture was going to take a little discipline to make it through because it's very slow. It's very somber, but I, I wanted to set the tone 
slow and somber, but then I give you a whole lot of other stuff that's more accessible, you know? So once Ryan asked me, I just had to kind of figure out what did I want to do musically? But then it was like, I don't really want to make it about me either. Like let's celebrate this great composer. So now it was like, let's do this research. And then we started finding out there is an unbelievable amount of information and an unbelievable amount of litigation that occurred during the years leading up to and for decades after. And if you don't narrow it down, you will never get around to talking about the Little Rock Nine mm -hmm. because you got three Brown versus the Board educations that ended in the 80s. That's why we have magnet schools in Little Rock from desegregation funds from the desegregation litigation. That's why I have my job right now. You know, uh, Favis had all this trickery going on. I, so I found all this crazy information. So it was like, okay, now Kelly, we got to come in. What are we going to do with the vocals? I don't want you to do a jazz nerd vocalese. <laughs> well, the Little Rock Nine, they were so cool. You know, I just, that's no, that's not going to work. You know, I don't want to do some dramatic African uh vocal semi-afro-cuban chant and i don't want to come out and do the field holler slave song route i want to do something that's just different so what we did was let's just focus on the kids what do we know about the kids and then when you do that there's only one in the, in the research world they would say uh, authentic source original source and that is that book because there's almost nothing else that's a first-hand account. Elizabeth Eckford has written some stuff, you know, but the only real first-hand account is that book. And when you talk to those, the nine, they'll tip. The reason is because nobody felt like talking about it for decades, and some of them still don't talk about it. So, she, and she was like, I had to do at least, I don't know, she said seven years, five years of therapy just to get the book done. It's so detailed and graphic. I mean, you just can't imagine, you know, you just don't think. I mean, we know they integrated when you realize, well, it, but it took a whole month because they had to try three times. We had to take over the National Guard of the whole state. Like Eisenhower comes in and takes over the whole state National Guard. Why? Because the governor was using the National Guard to block the children. So now they came and took it away. Then they move in a thousand paratroopers. Then they station a thousand troops there for a year then they shut the school district down so the black kids couldn't graduate from high school then you find out later that they didn't finish integrating little rock schools to 73. so when you think about it it's like this is not ancient history this is current history so if you just focus on only the nine you got more information than you could even possibly include and then you realize you can't include all the information so that really informed how the vocals got struck. I mean, I'll let Kelly tell you about it, but that kind of informed it because it was like, either you can do a really, I hate to say it, but pretentious jazz song about, I don't know, I guess you've probably heard the recordings that are out, you know, but people sing these songs and they're just like these kind of, to me, they're like these pretentious jazz songs where they try to sing lyrics that they seem meaningful, but it's just not. I don't know. 
it doesn't hit. So we just, we, when we, when she wrote, don't cry, it was like, we're just gonna go off the feeling of everything. And we're right off of the feeling. And then, but in terms of like the canon, what we call roll call and the overture, that was like, let's just report the news. Let's just say what happened. And so that's why so much is narration because it was like, you know what? It's not time to come out and do your vocal jazz exercises and show off your chops. I mean, that's just not the point. We're gonna just report the facts. And so the overture gives you a layout of all of what happened and as concise as she could get it. And then on roll call, she basically details every person involved plus LC Bates and Daisy Bates. And then after that, she sings, but she only really sings one vocal jazz number, you know, and it, and it, and it really just deals off the feeling of warriors don't cry. I mean, that's basic. We call it the warrior song just among the musicians, but it's the official titles don't cry. And then she also sings some uh, wordless vocals on Jubilate at the end, but we just had to, I mean, it was like, how do you, when you get offered that, it's like, well, so how do I translate this? It's kind of the question that I have about, uh, you know, you're talking about the vocals and how you're, uh, you have this, the warriors don't cry to go off of, but I think it must be like a different um, sort of balancing act for uh, composing the music. Like you say, you don't want to be pretentious, but I feel like you probably also have to balance sort of, you know, you have to depict like cruelty without sounding like crazy and frenetic and like even kind of like trivial or funny, you know? <laughs> Well, there's actually a movement called Crisis, where when we come out of Don't Cry, it ends on a real dissonant, sharp ending. And then basically, the entire group goes into free improvisation, with the exception that it's not totally unstructured. It's actually, we're all improvising off of all these different themes that you've already heard up to this point, but we want that like completely disorienting feeling. Um, and when Rufus did his symphonic arrangements, he kind of did like a Charles Ivesy sort of thing where he wrote out parts for all the orchestra, but he just told them, you know, you could play your part freely, you can repeat things. But so there's a, there's a, it's like you hear all these melodies that you've already heard, but it's in this totally disorienting context. And it's a little aggressive and overwhelming eventually. We wanted that because at some point you have to depict like, my thing was, what did it feel like the first time they got in the building? And this is like pre-social media, pre-security camera. And they realized they weren't gonna have fun. Yeah. It wasn't gonna be good. That it, and, it, and it wasn't gonna be just one day that it was like that. Right. What like, does it feel to feel like that? And I think that's what Dr. Fields liked the most was that we were able to portray that and let people actually feel that uh, confusion. And I, I thought this was going to be a good time. And are these people really going to do something to me? And, and to think that every day, the whole time that you're in school. It was, it was kind of just the, the, the trick was to get a perspective because you can't really start with like an academic musical exercise. You have to kind of like say, okay, what should it feel like when you hear the music, you know? Um, 
So we tried to have all the aspects. You know, we have the somber moment. We have the sort of happy kid. The to be a kid, it's like a, a mix of like bittersweet, like dark sadness in the beginning and end sometimes. But the song itself is really like childish and happy. Um, the roll call is like a blend of everything. I mean, it's there's a militant side to it. There's a, a little angry side to it. There's also just a straight. Let me tell you what about these people side. War. I mean, don't cry is 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 the strength and uh, crisis is that confusion and chaos. Jubilate is like at some point though. Don't we owe these kids like this tremendous debt of thanks and like they don't look back on that as a positive time period, but they also know that what they did was extremely necessary. This is The Art Scene from UA Little Rock Public Radio. I'm Daniel Breen. We're speaking with Christopher Parker and Kelly Hurt, composers of the No Tears Suite based on the memoir Warriors Don't Cry by Little Rock Nine member Melba patillo Beals. It's weird if someone asks you to do something that heavy. It's not like they said, could you write, could you put together a band and we're gonna like have a celebration of the 20th anniversary of like the big damn bridge, you know? Like that's like, okay, let's just play some music and let everyone have fun and party. This is like a real, they had an opera commission for this event, <laughs> you know? Uh, then they had a classical piece of music commission. They had a film display. A film so it was like, we gotta come with something substantial. <laughs> But at the same time, I just didn't want it to be so heady that people couldn't like at some point relax and, and groove. But I also that, you know, you know, y'all need to think about this because and these people are living. So right. <laughs> we wanted it. We didn't know if we would ever get to meet them or anything. But eventually <laughs> we felt that uh, since this project has taken legs and and gone of its own, <laughs> you know, that we wanted to at least present something and create something that they would be able to access right we're just now meet, we've met elizabeth eckford and melba patilla beals i have contact with mel uh thelma mothershed ware's family because i teach one of the younger children in that family he's a viola player in the seventh grade but um she's not able to actually talk she has medical issues so you can't really communicate but i do communicate with her family through school but at that it's like we knew none of the nine we had to pull a band together and they wanted a band with some all-star names that's why we ended up with brian blade and the whole process of putting the band together was like a family reunion of sorts <laughs> because uh our tenor player bobby lavelle he's from memphis his father gave Kelly her first gigs in Memphis. He's an organist named Honeymoon. Well, he's dead now, but he was an organist named Honeymoon Garner. And Bobby studied with a guy named Fred Ford, who we all were mentored by, who was a great saxophone player. Actually lived with him for a while. Then he went off with guys like Bobby Blue Bland and Ray Charles and ended up in the Ellington Band. And now he's in New York. He's playing with Jimmy Heath. Uh, well, was playing with Jimmy Heath. Uh, people like Benny Golson, just top shelf slide Hampton type of people. And I had known him about him from being in Memphis and hearing people talk. Kelly knew about him because she knew the family. 
And when I got to New York, we actually met and played together. And we played together some after I moved back down south. Um, but to have him back in the group was deep. And the, the other two horn players, Mark Franklin and Chad Fowler, are both North Little Rock guys. We all moved to Memphis together. So actually, there, we did gigs like with the, the three of us plus Kelly when we were in college. So that was a big reunion. Bill Huntington, Kelly and I had been working with him since we moved here. He's from New Orleans. He's a, just a super heavyweight sort of New Orleans legend. He was Ellis Marsalis bass player. He was uh, bass players for great piano players like Red Garland, who used to play with Miles Davis. Um, I'm trying to think of it. Duke Pearson who was living in Atlanta toward the end of his life. I mean, he's just a world-class bass player, but he was Brian Blade's teacher in college. So when we were like, who do we get that's got a big name in the jazz world? Bill goes, well, what about Brian? And I'm, I was like, that's it. If we get Brian, that's it. We're going straight Brian Blade because he's just really one of the greatest drummers out. We playing with Wayne Shorter, Herbie Hancock, Chick Corea, Joshua Redman, Christian McBride. I mean, he's top call as good as it gets and one of the sweetest people on earth. So it was like all of these, you know, he's excited. Now he gets to go back and play with his mentor from his, you know, late teens, early twenties. So there's just all this connection. Rufus, I actually met in Memphis doing a, when I was doing my graduate work, he came through with another piano player. I had to write some arrangements for them. We connected at that time and kind of halfway would keep in touch. So when they said, let's do the symphony, I knew I didn't have the experience needed to really not only pull off the writing, but even pull off proposing the project to somebody. You're not going to pay for this guy to write for the symphony. He has no credentials. So um, I just went straight to Rufus and was like, man, I know you're a great writer. Would you do this? And finally he went, yeah, I'll do it. You know, so then he and I got to reconnect. It was just the whole kind of like once it starts to snowball, it was, it was the, all the musicians is kind of a, a, a little, like we can't call just anybody to come play our gig. Like it's kind of a personal little thing, you know? So the whole project just evolved from being asked like late 2015, early 2016, performing in 2017, recording at the end of 2017, performing with the symphony 2019, then now the recording, first recording finally comes out 2020. It's just, I mean, again, I didn't ask anybody to do it. They just asked me and I said, yes, and then one thing leads to another. And the next thing I know, yesterday, I'm on a Zoom event with Dr. Beals talking about the music and playing the music for her. And it's just been kind of a, a crazy evolution. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I definitely would be interested in what y'all have heard from Dr. Beals and uh, any other members of the night about the suite. And also just, just what you think or what you hope for the general public to learn or react to to this piece of music i would hope that at some point that dark the stigma to me there's always been a stigma about the integration of central high like a big guilt trip 
you know, um, because you can't get away from acknowledging the ugliness of it. It was just straight ugly. Everybody acted ugly. I mean, that was what my mother's reaction was because she actually one day skipped school and went because she heard that these kids were going to get to go to Central High. So she thought they were having like, you know, a celebration. And her mom had said, stay, don't go over there. You don't need to be over there right now. Just go to school. And uh, she lived off of 12th Street, not too far from Central High. She walked over and saw all these people and saw these kids. And she was like, oh, this is this big event. And then at some point, I think she said a photographer flashed a light bulb, a flash bulb in her face. And all of a sudden it was like something triggered. And she realized what she was actually seeing was a super hostile, violent mob about to descend on these little nine little kids. And people driving around, probably from what I've heard, driving around in pickup trucks with shotguns and, you know, people uh, tearing up police barricades. And I mean, all of a sudden she realized it was super violent and ugly. And people actually told her like, you need to go home right now. This is gonna get really out of hand. And it freaked her out. So there's always a stigma, you know, but the, the truth is this though, we were the first one to do it. If they didn't do it, someone else would have been the first one. This, this is where it happened. This is where the game got changed. So either you can still be like, oh, we were such jerks to those kids and now we have to live in shame. Or you can be like, no, this is where we changed the whole game. And eventually the integration of the entire United States school system. So either you can lift your head up about it and stop making it such a black and white guilt trip and just make it a community source of pride uh or you can keep with this hanging your head down well you know we don't want to really talk about that well you know when we had one of the um when we had the i guess the talk after the event well before the event um we had some of the descendants of the people the women who wrote letters requesting and i can't remember the exact name it was a, an organization of women and parents asking them to open back up the public schools because everybody is it's like why are you closing the public schools? that means no one can get an education no one can do anything and they actually had this small campaign and they wrote dozens and dozens of letters uh, pleading with them to reopen the schools and we had some descendants of those people actually at the talk that we did at the uh, visitor center right and so it it's really interesting how these uh just facts have come to us just by way of people by way of us just talking just having just conversations and and we met two historians that apparently know everything there is to know about Little Rock and North Little Rock when we first moved here. <laughs> so, and, and it would tell us everything about the different neighborhoods and what went on from, you know, 9th Street to Hillcrest and why the Heights and Hillcrest aren't together and, <laughs> and things like that and, and the trolleys that ran at the time. So it's really interesting to, to just run into these people and then, just willingly give us all of this history and then have it culminate in us 
being able to use it when we did our art. You did mention the sort of myriad other creative things that have been based off of the story of the Little Rock Nine, and like plays and films and operas and things like that. I guess I was just wondering, you know, you, you speak of the accessibility of your piece and what, what about jazz itself, like lends, uh, lends itself so well to both that accessibility and both also just uh, telling the story of the Nine. The heart of jazz music, when you actually hear what I would call authentic jazz music, I don't care how what a high level it is or how academic you could get in your analysis of what's happening. When you really hear Charlie Parker or Sonny Rollins or Monk play, that's the people's music. It's America's music. Jazz is, was the most integrated high level art form there, there was. For instance, Bill Huntington played banjo in an all black band in New Orleans as a teenager. They had to rehearse in the back of a mattress factory to not get caught by the cops for having an integrated band. So jazz music has always spoken to integration. It transcends race. So to me, jazz was the perfect vehicle. That was Christopher Parker speaking with his wife, Kelly Hurt. They're the composers of the No Tears Suite, based on the memoir Warriors Don't Cry by Little Rock Nine member Melba Patillo Beals. They spoke with the art scene shortly after the 63rd anniversary of the desegregation of Little Rock Central High School. And that's our show for this week. Please tune in next week at the same time. I'm Daniel Breen, and the art scene is a presentation of UA Little Rock Public Radio.